John 1, 1 through 18 deals with incarnation and history. Matthew and Luke, as they begin their Gospels, give us the story of the virgin birth. But John goes far deeper. He begins not only with the presupposition of God's miraculous son, the miraculous birth, to which he refers in verse 18, the only begotten son. But he goes much further to tell us what Jesus Christ was from all eternity. The virgin birth, after all, is treated by John as the starting point of faith, not a high point, not a peak of faith, a presupposition, something that you begin with, and so presupposing that which has already been declared by Matthew and by Luke, John goes much further, and he gives us the essence of the doctrine of Christ. John presupposes faith as he opens up these things. He does not deal with people as though they were rational men who were to be convinced to truth by logical argumentation. He declares unto them the truth Because nothing else is the truth. John does not ask his readers to have an open mind. Because when you approach the truth, you do not approach the truth with an open mind, but with an obedient mind. Does mathematics call for an open mind or an intelligent mind? When you approach geometry, trigonometry, algebra, any area of mathematics, you approach it with an open mind to say, I will determine for myself whether this is right or wrong before I accept it and before I study it. How are you able to judge? Instead, you approach mathematics with an intelligent mind, not an open mind. With a mind that says, here is a discipline, a learning. And it's not for me to sit in judgment on it, but to study it. So John speaks to the intelligent mind, not to the open mind. And although the birth of Christ is greater, the person is greater. And so he begins with the person. In the first four verses, he gives us the true nature of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the life of man. This Jesus Christ who dwelt among us, says Paul, is eternal. He was with the Father before the world was, before all things. He is co-eternal with the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is a person distinct from the Father and the Godhead, though in perfect union with him. He is God. There are three persons in the Godhead, but one God. The Word was God. And the Word, the Son, was creator of all things. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So declares John, this Jesus of Nazareth who walked among you, was before the foundation of the world and the whole creation was made by him. He is the source of all life in every form. He has life in himself. In him was life. The life was the light of all men. So that Jesus Christ, who indeed, as has been declared unto you, was born of the Virgin Mary, and was very man of very man, was also declared John, very God of very God. Then John goes on in verses 5 through 11 to speak of the revelation and rejection of Jesus Christ. He was God before all creation. He created all things. But man, although the light of Jesus Christ shines in the darkness, the darkness comprehends it. Darkness can neither comprehend it in the sense of understanding nor of grasping it, of putting it out, of being able to surround it, so that in neither sense is the darkness able to comprehend Jesus Christ. He is beyond their understanding and he is beyond their putting out. For he is the Lord and by him were all things made that are made. John, a man sent from God, gave witness to him. He came as a witness to bear witness of the life that all men might believe through him. Jesus Christ is the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The relationship of Jesus Christ to humanity is that of creator. All men were made by him. And every man has his mind, his existence, his being, 
by the direct work of Jesus Christ. And yet when he was in the world, and the world was made by him, the world knew him not. They refused to recognize him. They turned their shoulders on him. He came, moreover, not only to the world, but unto his own, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, Israel. His own received him not. They also turned their back on him. Because mankind was fallen and was in sin and therefore refused to recognize their creator. It was not a failure of understanding. It was an evil intent. It was not that it was not sufficiently explained to them. It was that they refused to understand. And this is the problem to this day. People continually want to make excuses for mankind. But as Paul declared in the first chapter of Romans, all men as men, wherever they live, whether in the heart of the African jungles in Asia, America, or South America, the invisible things of the world are known to them, are written on the structure of their being because they were made by God and this testimony was implanted in their being. But they suppress this truth. They hold it down in unrighteousness. This is not knowledge that they cannot know or have not heard but that they refuse to know. But then John goes on to declare in verses 12 and 13 that acceptance of Jesus Christ is the source of power. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name, which were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that even as our Lord's birth was a miracle, in that his birth was not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but directly of God. So our regeneration is a miracle that is compared to the virgin birth. It is of God. It is not of the blood. We have no natural right to regeneration, to salvation. Nor is it of the will of man. We cannot will ourselves into heaven. It is of God. So that the source of our power, the source of our regeneration is from above. And then he goes on to describe the essence of what took place. The word was made flesh. Welcome on that. 
We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal word, the eternal second person of the Trinity, tented, tabernacled among us. We beheld his glory, the very glory of the second person of the Trinity, made in kind, very man, as well as very God, and the incarnation also of all grace and truth, as well as the person of God. And John testified concerning this. And then St. John the Apostle goes on to say, and of his fullness, his inexhaustible Grace and power have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. This word was truth in time. This idea is fantastic to the Greeks. Fantastic to all paganism. Because for all paganism, truth is a proposition. Two plus two equals four, that is the truth. There was a riot last year in August in Watts, that is the truth. And truth in this sense, truth of an accurate reporting of certain things, which is truth in the eyes of pagans, of all non-Christians, is a truth without any power to save, a truth without any right or wrong necessarily to it. Because what merit, what power, what holiness, what righteousness is there in the truth? There was a riot in what past year. But this truth is imbued with all power. And this truth is a person Jesus Christ. Grace and truth are a person. And this person came and dwelt among us. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And with this verse, John's declaration concerning the incarnation of history comes to explain No man can see God. God, the invisible one, the creator of all things, God who is a spirit, no man can see. But the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, in him, God has been declared unto man. The word declared in the Greek is very interesting. We have that Greek word also in English in the word exegesis. What is exegesis? Exegesis is that interpretation of a passage when you 
bring out the meaning of every word and of the totality accurately and fully, so that when you exegete a passage of scripture, you bring out its true meaning faithfully and read nothing into it. When you read something into the text that is not there, you are guilty of eisegesis. The work of the Supreme Court, for example, is to give an exegesis of the Constitution. But we no longer have an exegesis of the Constitution. We have an eisegesis in that the Supreme Court reads something into the Constitution that is not there. An exegesis brings out the meaning faithfully, adding nothing to it, nor detracting anything from the meaning of the text. Now Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, he hath declared God. He hath exegeted God. He hath fully and faithfully, adding nothing to it, nor subtracting anything from it, brought out the meaning of God. Therefore, he could say to his disciples at the last supper, He that hath seen me, have seen the Father. He is the truth incarnate. And because Jesus Christ is the truth, the promise of history is with him and the truth of history. Therefore, we cannot know history any more than we can know ourselves who are the actors of history. Apart Today we are told that the truth of a great society is the evolving truth of history. And this is a direct challenge to the scriptures because Christ is the truth. He by whom all things were made. And the scriptures affirm the finality of Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the totality. Everything in this earth. By him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. And known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world, so that all history is in the hands of Almighty God, so that Jesus Christ is the meaning of history. The meaning of history is to be found in Christ, not in man or the state. And today the attempt of all men is to find another meaning in history than Jesus Christ. It is the desire of the sinner always to provide his own meaning. And the parent says to the child, you disobeyed me, I commanded you to do something, and you broke my command. 
The disobedient child says, I did because I wanted to. I did that seemed, in other words, right and logical and sensible in my own eyes. And so with man, he says to God, in effect, history is going to mean what I declare it must mean. And I will establish my own conception of truth, my own conception of the goal of history, my own conception of what constitutes true society, the great society or the great community, or the goal of history. I will be my own truth. And so instead of deriving the meaning of history, then by whom all things were made, the meaning is derived from the future. And the implication of this is clear cut. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what these people today are saying, whether they are Marxists or Fabians, or welfare economists, or members of the great society, or progressivists, or pragmatists, they are saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with man, and the Word was man. They make man the reason and the power. the universe. And when they turn to the scriptures, they make Christ human so that man can become God. And all these modernists who preach week in and week out and destroy the deity of Christ, it is with one purpose, so they can deify man and his faith. Or else they make Christ divinity, the divinity of all men, so that all men can claim divinity. And it ends up with one thing, an evil cost they take. The state, the great society, the dictatorship of the proletariat, as the word, the light, the light of every man. John declares the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father he hath declared him. God is declared. And all meaning all history is declared and exegeted fully in Jesus Christ. And we cannot go outside of Christ in order to understand the meaning of all things. We cannot read history, therefore, in terms of man's plan or Satan's plan. As we saw a few weeks ago, those who want to read history in terms of satanic conspiracies, real though these conspiracies are, are saying that the meaning of history is in Satan. They become guilty of worshiping Satan. But the 
the peak climbs of all conspiracies of history. When the Sanhedrin gathered together and purposed to crucify Christ, and saw this as a fulfillment of all their plans and conspiracies. The Apostle John declares that they knew not that at that very moment they were destroying themselves and fulfilling the plan and purpose of God, whereby Jesus Christ died for the remission of the sins of his people and to destroy the power of sin and death by his resurrection. Even at that moment, John summons us to put on the plans of the synagogue of Satan to the music. He that sitteth in the circle of the heaven shall laugh. He shall hold them in It is God's purpose, declared in Jesus Christ, that we must read history by. How we read history, therefore, reveals our faith. Are we going to see history as the Marxists and the Fabians see it? Are we going to see it as something that Satan endlessly manipulates and we must stand there quivering, waiting for the blow to fall? Or are we to see it in terms of Jesus Christ, by whom all things were made and without him was not anything made that was made? Either John's declaration is true, And we must read history in terms of Jesus Christ. Or we must be honest and forsake the whole of Scripture. Because this is no pathway of faith. How shall we read history? But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And having been born again of him, let us move, therefore, not in terms of fear of Satan, but in terms of the power and the purpose of God. For this is our call, and this is our victory. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy sovereign word. We thank thee that thou art the Lord of history, master of the whirlwind and the storm. And even in the storm that is gathering round us, Thou art the Lord. The storm shall move not in terms of the purposes of Satan and his cohorts, but in terms of thy holy purpose, thy saving 
life. Make us strong and faithful, therefore, unto thee, that we might be resolute unto victory, that we might in all things know that thy purpose is declared, is executed, not in the conspiracies of men, In thine incarnate word, Jesus Christ, and recorded in thy written word, the scriptures. Make us strong in faith, that we may prevail and conquer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Before we have our questions, I'd like to call your attention to a pamphlet I promised to give you some information on last week. I mentioned that a very fine pastor had done some exhaustive work on Billy Graham and others like him, pointing out his connection with the National Council of Churches, how he has given thousands I believe as much as 67,000 in a single campaign to the Council of Churches and how he has in various ways compromised the faith. The title of this is Evangelicalism, the New Neutralism, or simply the New Neutralism. The author, William E. Ashbrook. Single copies are 35 cents, three for a dollar, 25 for 100. And they can be ordered from the Reverend William E. Ashbrook, A-S-H-B-R-O-O-K, 115 West Weisheimer Road, W-E-I-S-H. E-I-M-E-R Road, Columbus 14, Ohio. Yes. Yes, this is all, of course, a total perversion of everything in Scripture. The new line of the far left and of the National Council is that the Bible is not concerned with metaphysics or with truth. It is simply concerned with action. And so Jesus uh, didn't believe in an unchanging truth. He was for a new truth for each age. He was for perpetual revolution. In fact, Harvey Cox, one of the leaders of this school, who teaches at Harvard, at Harvard Divinity School, mind you, has one sentence in his book, The Secular City, in which he said, 
Jesus is a mobile man. In other words, he was a man who was perpetually in motion, uh, believed in perpetual change. And of course, the ideal for Harvey Cox and for the National Council increasingly is the urban man who lives in an apartment and is completely rootless. This is the man of the future. And secularization is the fulfillment, they insist, of the gospel. Now, of course, this is nothing more or less than a total perversion. And in terms of this, the gospel becomes world revolution. The idea in all of this, of course, is to take over the churches and to destroy them from within. And what they have done is to work very slowly in order to brainwash the people, to get them to accept the new meanings they give to words. For example, all of us think of the word humanism and humanitarianism as good words, don't we? And if you speak of a man as a great humanitarian, you're saying something fine about him. But if you will check Webster's dictionary for the definition of humanitarianism, you will see that the basic meaning of the word is one who denies the deity of Christ and Christianity and believes in the divinity of man. But what they have done is to take that word and try to make it cognate with everything that's good and noble and ideal, and little by little introduce that as a secondary meaning while retaining the first meaning. So now you have two meanings in the dictionary. And this is how steadily they destroy words, and how they destroy the very text of the Bible. They take and reinterpret and reinterpret, just as the Constitution has been reinterpreted by eisegesis until it means its direct opposite. We don't have constitutional government any longer. We've had the weird thing in California in the past week of having a part of the Constitution declared unconstitutional. <laughs> now, I have no doubt that very soon we will be told that uh, vast portions of our Constitution are unconstitutional, the U.S. Constitution, in terms of the U.N. Charter or some other higher law, the Supreme Court. In other words, these reinterpretations of Christ are total perversion, designed steadily to brainwash people. And the thing we must do is to stay away from these things as far as possible and warn people about them and to break with every church that is a part of this National Council, World Council conspiracy against Jesus Christ. Yes. Um, that's all a very interesting meeting, David, and our social workers and administrators are taking the time 
at Illinois, and said in the organization, he was also the administrator of the Long Family Fund in Santa Barbara. And um, he told about going to a meeting of uh, a seminar sponsored by UCLA at Lake Arrowhead. And all of the people who were interested in the Long Family Fund were there, you know, the new social workers, right? And he said they were all there together, and, you know, the girls were there that uh, meetings and so forth, but the two lecturers were so interested in somebody by the name of Booth from Detroit, who he said was a real rabble guy. And uh, he said this, this was an eye-opening experience because all the participants were very young were new destinations, and among them, the greatest friends of the Negroes were either black Muslims or black nationalists, and they talked about revolution all the time. And he said they, Alinsky and Booth were there to train them on how to go in the cities and take over uh, the strongly established all the cities and everything. So they are quite open and, you know, respected taking over our cities and everything. But he tried this National Council of Churches and installed this. And he said the best here in the case of Yes. He has already stated, Saul Alinsky has already stated that practically all his support for his program of revolution, breaking the power structure as he calls it, virtually all his funds come from the churches. This is very true, because the gospel according to the churches is no longer Jesus Christ, it is revolution. Yes. No, you can't make a flat judgment of all of them. Uh, a number of them have that compromising stand, but others definitely do not. The one who is the most militant against any compromise and the most consistent in his hostility to compromise to any uh, social gospel is John R. Rice. John R. Rice, R-I-C-E. He puts out uh, a little weekly, the sword of the Lord, and he has been quite militant in his hostility to these things. Yes. Yes, that's true. Our new slugs are not accepted across the border. Uh, speaking of revolution, if you have not yet seen the new American opinion for May, the lead article on Watts, the fact that another explosion is due in Watts this summer, I heartily recommend that you read it. Yes, they 
They state the areas, Southgate, Linwood, Downey, that are expected to go up in flames this time because their program is to move out, move out progressively into white areas. Yes. The point being that as Christians, if we understand these uh, things in our times and history, and we get great concern about the things that are transpiring around us today, is this an indication that we do not have faith? No, because our faith has to be relevant to history. And therefore, we must be concerned with these things. We must do battle against the powers of darkness. But we cannot ever believe that the power is with darkness. So that we must contend for the faith. We must apply the faith to every area. We must move out into politics, economics, every area, education. But we must never never feel that the initiative belongs to the enemy or that they are going to prevail. Yes, uh, I know what you're talking about. Some Christians who feel that the way to show that they have faith is to separate themselves so totally from the world that they do nothing about the evil that goes on around them. Now, there are a lot of these ultra-fundamentalistic groups on college campuses. Their attitude is that they're not going to concern themselves about anything, applying their faith or fighting what they get. They're simply going to have prayer meetings and try to build themselves up spiritually. And the result is that they surrender more than any other Christian group. Because the minute you say, I'm not going to fight, you surrender. Then you end up making peace with them. This past week, I was with a lot of campus groups in the Midwest speaking on different college campuses to groups great and little. And I was scheduled to speak, among other things, at the there an university group. And I told the man with whom I was going I was not happy about such a meeting because I had never found much response with such groups. Only once where I could say the response was possibly good. Because such people were not interested in having the faith made relevant. They just wanted to know how they could escape more. In other words, uh, some... Uh, gimmicks about uh, prayer life and that sort of thing, but no real application of the faith. And it was really something. It was the one uh, negative response I had on the trip. 
because I had this group of college kids and their faculty sponsor and the area coordinator. The area coordinator was working for a doctorate in guidance and counseling, mental health. The uh, uh, faculty sponsor was a leftist and a strong uh, believer in the mental health movement, as you could find. And when I spoke out against these things and pointed out that Christian attitude had to be one of hostility to these things, because they were another gospel, socialism, mental health movement, and all these things, the reaction was one of hysteria. And uh, this faculty sponsor, who was a young woman, was practically screeching most of the time during the question period, not letting any of the students have a chance. And the attitude of the students was one of shock, just plain shock. Well, why can't I believe in, in the biblical morality and in the morality of more, Principia Ethica? Because I said one is totally atheistic and relativistic, and the other says there is an absolute moral law by God. Well, why can't you bring the two together? And that was it over and over again. Why can't I be a good Christian as long as I read so many verses a day and have a prayer life and then be a socialist and believe in everything the world teaches and its moral code and everything else as long as my devotional life is maintained. And I finally got one boy to say that the Scripture was the absolute law of God and totally binding and there could be nothing else that could have any authority with him uh, unless it were in conformity with it. But he waited until no one else was around him before he hastily said yes and dashed off. Now, this is what happens. These people are the ones who talk about their faith being secure. But by refusing to apply their faith, they surrender. They are the worst of I was very right before I went into that meeting. I said I wasn't happy about such groups because I know what they are. They are the holier than thou people. But they are the worst ones when it comes to a surrender. You can speak to liberals and you challenge them. They know that what you say is contradictory to what they hold. But these people, it's not either or, but both and. And you can't deal with such fuzzy-minded thinking. You can only send it to hell where it belongs. Right. Right. Well, I'll uh, give you a reference next week because that's a big question on another pamphlet. And if I fail to uh, remind me, it goes into the healing movement and the tongues movement and analyzes them very carefully from a biblical, theological point of view. And that's better than giving an offhand opinion. Yes. Now, what you were talking about, and my question before was, was this, that um, I'm thinking of, 
different groups. I don't know if they're considered churches. I have never heard a name of a church connected with them. But uh, there are ministers, head up, that consider, you know, like the, the Jews would say they're the chosen people, and there's a group of white people, and they're the chosen people. And they can uh, cite all the verses in the Bible. Huh? No, no, that is what I'm thinking about. And they know their Bible from beginning to end, but they will not accept any people into their so-called church. Uh, only white, because these are the children. Mm-hmm. The chosen people. Now, if you're a Christian, you have to be a Christian, and you can be other nationalities. Yes. I mean, other Th- this could be a British Israelite group. There are a number of, su- of such groups that are very restrictive, and this is false. Well, because the Bible says that there will be the elect of God in the eternal kingdom of God out of every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. You cannot. When you put a corner on God's grace, you cornered yourself out of it. Another oh yes. Christ promised to return. Is this what confuses me is if everything was proper in the first place, why return is done? Christ began, made history, made the world in the beginning. Man fell into sin. Christ came into the world to save man from sin. Then at the end of history, Christ will come to end this world and this creation and to usher in the eternal and new creation. So that he is, as it were, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of history. And Alpha and Omega means not merely the beginning and end, but the A through Z, as it were, the totality, the ABC on the Z of history. So that his second coming brings history to a conclusion. And it says to us very vividly that he by whom all things were made and he by whom all things were saved is he by whom all things will come to their fulfillment and have their new and eternal destiny. Right, it will leave them in hell. They're not, uh, it's, the idea of trying and being decent is a veil to what we were discussing, that they will not know him. It's not a failure of knowledge, it's a failure of will. 
They don't want to know him. They refuse to know him. They want life on their terms. They, they are saying, not Christ as the word, but me as the word. And history has to be understood in terms of what I say. When I was at one college campus, the young man who was with me taking me around, and I hope he's recuperating because we were driving every night but one until 3.30 in the morning to get from place to place and get in all the meetings, and uh, it was raining every night. In fact, it, they were having floods all over the area, so it was a wild and hectic week. At any rate, he was arguing with this minister who was a total compromiser. And every time he came within a hair's breadth of forcing him to admit the truth, that he ducked around the issue and he said, Oh, but don't you see, Fred, uh, that you're arguing because you're emotionally involved. And that was his answer. In other words, when he, he reached the point each time he had, had to admit, this is the truth and I am a liar because I refuse to stand in terms of the truth, he was changing the whole focus of the argument and getting into something personal. And this is the way it is with all men who refuse to believe whether they've heard of Christ or not. It is a failure of the will. And they maintain a public front, maintain a public front and say, you see, uh, I am such a respectable person. How could God ever look down his nose at me? How could any man ever look down his nose at me? Well, God does, and I think I'll take God's perspective. Not complete faith, because none of us have that. any kind of faith, yes. And that's all it requires, because the thief on the cross, you see, was a man who was a murderer and a thief, probably a revolutionary. And when they began, he and the other thief were mocking Jesus. You think you're so good, so great. Look where you are. You can't save yourself. But this thief was stricken. He knew. And although he'd never studied theology, perhaps never had a single Bible lesson in all his days, he knew the truth as every man does, although all men suppress it in unrighteousness. And he turned finally and said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This very day before Sunday, Sunday, now that's all it took. And that's all it takes with any man. But as Paul says, they hold down the truth. They suppress it in unrighteousness because they can't change. I think one of the most vivid examples of this 
I ever had was a young man who came to me, afraid he was going to die, a big, burly young man, whom everyone called Pop because he had been named after Pop Warner, the football coach at Stanford, by his father, who had once been, had played under Pop Warner. And I've forgotten the name of his condition, but it was uh, a varicose vein of the uh, throat and digestive tract, so that when he drank, and he was a heavy drinker, it would uh, cause the vein to break and the hemorrhage very badly. And so that every time he started drinking heavily, he'd start uh, coughing up blood, and sometimes it'd just come pouring out of his nose and mouth. And so he was frightened, and he came to me, and I talked to him very plainly about the faith. And he knew it was all true. And he knew what he had to do in order to live. And I told him, Warner, you know yourself, and you know your own nature and your sins. I said, what you need to do is simply to pray and ask for God's saving power and help to throw off your drinking and become a new creature in Christ. And that finished it. He said, Rush, how can a man humble himself to pray? To ask God for anything. He got up and left. Now, he wanted some other answer than to submit to God. He was God in his own life. That's it. And this is it with everything. Who's going to be God? God or myself. And what men are saying is, I am my own God. And this is the conclusion of Satan. He shall be as God, your own God. Knowing, that is, determining good and evil for yourself. And Calvin once said, many, many people who are guilty of this sin, who are fearful sinners, nonetheless are outwardly very fine citizens. Why? They've made themselves their own gods, and on their own, they say, I like to have a good home life, and that's happier that way. I like to be a good citizen. After all, life is better that way and more profitable for me. So, Calvin said, these men often put some believers to shame with their conduct, their outward conduct. But in their heart, this is the reality. They have said, I am God, not God. And this is the sin that men must confess. Sin men must overthrow and submit themselves to God and say, He alone is God. And He alone, therefore, can be my Savior. I cannot save myself. Well, our time is past. We stand dismissed.